it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Psalm 5 stands in the middle of five lament psalms, beginning in Psalm 3 through 7, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. In all of these psalms, David is offering prayers in the midst of various trials in his life, some of which we're made aware of, where the context is known, and others where the circumstances is left unspecified. And like Psalm 4, before it, Psalm 5 was written without specifying the circumstances, therefore left for us to speculate. In our studies in the first four Psalms, there's been a common thread in the contrast between the position, character, and prospects of the righteous with that of the wicked. We saw in Psalm 1, for example, the way of the righteous contrasted with the way of the wicked. In Psalm 2, we saw the rebellion of the wicked against God Himself. In Psalm 3, the psalmist himself is attacked by the wicked. And in Psalm 4, we found the wicked have slandered David, the psalmist. So is this, this pitting of the wicked against the righteous. And here in Psalm 5, we're going to find the same thing along the same lines. The psalmist contrasting his own position, which is made righteous by the grace of God against the wicked who are the enemies of God. We're going to consider this exposition of this psalm in two major sections. Each section then divided into two subheadings. The first in verses 1 to 3, which is the, the manner or the posture whereby we approach God in prayer. In verses 1 through 3. Then in verses 4 through 7, a contrast between the wicked and the godly. Together, this makes up the first main section of the psalm. It defines the basis upon which the godly are given access to the throne of grace and the ungodly are forbidden access. Then, once we hit verse 8, we're coming into the second half of the psalm, the second major section, where we find the specific prayers that are being offered. First, in verses 9 to 10, the imprecation on behalf of the ungodly. And this is the first example that we have in the psalm of an imprecation, which is a prayer that calls down God's wrath upon the wicked. And I want to take some time today to discuss the role of imprecatory prayers, particularly in the life of the New Testament believer and in the life of the New Testament church. And we're going to ask ourselves the question, is it right for a Christian to pray for God's just wrath be upon the enemies of God. Is that an appropriate prayer for a New Testament Christian? This is a matter that some commentators have either tried to ignore or explain away. Uh, it is a matter, though, that is important. It is a matter that we must know for ourselves whether or when we should pray such prayers, whether they're appropriate how they fit in with the New Testament command of Christ, that we pray for those who despitefully use us, that we love our enemies. 
So I'm going to take a little extra time on that when we come to it to consider the matter, particularly, again, this being the first time that we are seeing this matter of imprecatory prayers. Then we'll conclude the second half of the psalm in verses 11 and 12 with the request on behalf of the godly. And I'm calling this psalm generally a morning prayer. A morning prayer based on verse 3 where it says, My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. But the main theme of the psalm is this, the basis and the appropriate nature of prayers for the godly and for the ungodly. We're going to see this, both examples of prayer for bo- of both on behalf of the godly and the ungodly in this psalm. The psalm is almost like a tennis match with five stanzas. The first has God in view. The second has man in view. The third has God again in view. Then the fourth has man. And lastly, it ends with match point with God. This, like the first four psalms before it, we will find very practical as we often wonder, how do we pray? Remember, the disciples asked Jesus a very practical question. Lord, teach us to pray. Well, the psalms provide practical instruction in how we are and how we are not to pray. So there's very practical application in this psalm as we apply it to our own prayers. And I say it's very practical because out of the mouths of many, all you will hear when it comes down to prayer is bless this one, bless that one, bless that one, bless, bless, bless. Always positive. Rarely do you hear a prayer uttered like Psalm 69, verse 22, for example. Let their table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so they may not see. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Add iniquity to their iniquity. Let him be accursed. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. These are prayers that are taken directly out of Scripture in both the Old and the New Testament. And many ignore them or explain them away or say that they're part of an old dispensation that's now been surpassed by one of love. Many so-called scholars claim that such prayers, such imprecations, these imprecatory prayers, are archaic, barbaric, and even immoral. They say that the product of David's flesh and only serve as a negative example to we who have been enlightened by Christ's unconditional love. Is it so? Is that the case? And if it's not so, then why do so many ignore this aspect of prayer in the church today? And we will look into these things as we consider for ourselves what constitutes appropriate posture and content for prayer. Let's read Psalm 5 together. Psalm 5, beginning with the title, To the Chief Musician with Flutes, a Psalm of David. Now, whether you believe this is the superscript or the subscript of the previous psalm, when we look at the end of, uh, when we look at the beginning of Psalm 6, we find out that either way, this psalm is to the chief musician. Psalm 5 was meant for the cause of public worship. It was written by David to be publicly prayed. This is not a private prayer here. And that's going to 
turn out to be important if you keep that in mind because we're going to consider today the role of such prayers in corporate and public worship even today. The psalm begins, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I will pray. My voice you will hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you. And I will look up. Now in verse 4, the contrast begins between the godly and the ungodly. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. And here's now the imprecation in verse 9. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions. For they have rebelled against you. And lastly, the prayer on behalf of the godly. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. 2,000 years ago, as God in human form, prepared for the final week on earth. His disciples secured a donkey for him to ride upon. And as he descended the Mount of Olives, a multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. But not everyone rejoiced that day. Some of the Pharisees called upon Jesus to rebuke his disciples for making such a bold proclamation. As he approached the holy city, Jerusalem, and he looked upon it, the one whom the book of Hebrews says, in the days of his flesh offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, wept. And he wept over a city. And he wept over this city that refused his visitation. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, he cried. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Then the next day, one Gospel writer reports that Jesus had come out of Bethany, and he saw a fig tree in the distance, and he was hungry. And he went to get some of its fruit, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. And in response, Jesus said, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And he cursed the fig tree. Then it's reported by Luke that Jesus went into the temple 
And he began to drive out those who bought and sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And this brought to mind of some what was written in the imprecatory Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. In this series of events in the life of Jesus, we find many of the same themes that we're going to visit in Psalm 5. We find a king. We find his prayers and cries, his supplication. We find his imprecation, that is, his calling of a curse. One cannot read Psalm 5 without thinking of the prayers and cries of our Lord. Christ was a man of prayer. His burden for his house was that it would be a house of prayer. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, describes Christ. It says, in the days of his flesh, he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. Prayer was the lifeline of Christ and it is of every Christian who is going to follow after him. David was a man of prayer. From Psalm 5, we find that he was not limited to one kind of prayer. There are men who can pray publicly but give no time to private prayer. Others are very able to set aside time between kneeling down and rising up, but then throughout the day, their hearts and their thoughts are far from Christ. Well, in Psalm 5, we find David has no trouble with any aspect of prayer. David begins in verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry. We find here three different kinds of prayer. David doesn't limit his communication with God to verbal words in one side or to quiet meditation on the other. Both of these are essential to a well-balanced prayer life. We neglect neither of these. See, the reason that David was able to do this was because he cultivated a spirit of prayer more than a habit of prayer. You know, to have a habit of prayer is a good thing. To set aside, to be able to have the discipline, to set aside time every day and go into the secret place to be with God is absolutely right. But then beyond this, before we kneel and after we rise from that secret place, we must also be able to cultivate a spirit of prayer throughout the day. That's what the, the, the apostle meant when he said, pray without ceasing. Because prayer was in David's heart, we find the variation of his posture, his position in prayer, varies. So David uses words, we find, to pray, give ear to my words, O Lord. But he also prays in silence. He says what? Consider my meditation. And then because of his relationship with God as his Father, he cries to the Lord. Turn to Romans 8. Keep your place in Psalm 5. We're going to come right back to that. But turn to Romans 8. And for the detail on this, I would encourage you to refresh your, your mind of Pastor Bill's teachings in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, on the cry of Abba, Father, and also in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, on what it means that the Spirit makes intercession with groanings that cannot be uttered. In Romans 8, verse 15 and 16, it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. There are times, and I'm sure you all have experienced this, 
when you just cannot put prayer into words. And all that you can do is sigh at times or cry. But the Lord, you know, He knows the meaning of that sigh. He can comprehend that meaning because it comes from the spirit of adoption that where which we cry out, Abba, Father. Look down at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There are times when we're so grieved and we're so burdened about something, it consumes our minds and we don't know what to pray. And at such times, to a loving Father, the cries of His children are music to His ears. He can't resist our cries. As those of you who have children know, when your son or when your daughter cries out your name, Daddy. Back to Psalm 5. David says, give heed to what? The voice of my cry. Give heed to the voice of my cry. My King and my God. You're not aliens to God. You're His children. He's your Father. If you've been born again, if you are in Christ, He is your Father. And He is your King. And He is your God. David saw this. David knew this. See the two little pronouns in verse 2? My King and my God, for to you I will pray. God's kingship. He's your King. And you know what? Because He's King, because of His kingship, that's the very foundation upon which the cry is based. Because He's King, He has authority and He has power to carry out David's righteous requests. And He will yours as well as you cry out to Him as your Father. So David now has mentioned his voice in prayer, his meditation, and his cries. We see three different kinds of prayer right there. Men of God throughout history have found solution to life's problems by directing them to God in prayer. To the one who would hear and could only, the only one who can assist them. In verse 3, David continues, My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. Before his day even began, David would receive the confidence necessary to face his afflictions and bear his burdens. In the morning... Jesus, there's no doubt He rose early in the morning to spend the best part of His day with the Father. And likewise, there's little doubt if we would cease from the hustle and bustle of our morning hour and deliberately take time to direct our prayers to God, we too would have that constant joy that the psalmist sees, experiences here of looking up in faith and looking up into His face all day long. E.M. Bounds has noted, the little estimate we put on prayer is evident from the little time we give to it. How poor and mean our petty, childish praying is beside the habits of true men of God in all ages. And I remember a few years ago reading about the prayer habits of many godly men and, and God quickened to my spirit and He said, I'm no respecter of persons. God is not a respecter of Matthew Henry or Martin Luther or Joseph Aline or Charles Simeon. These were men of God who established prayer habits and God is no respecter of persons. And what He's done for them, He'll do for you. 
Matthew Henry, best known for commentator, uh, on the, uh, wrote the commentary on the entire Bible. Pastor in England. Henry was a diligent student of the Word, rising early at 4 o'clock in the morning to spend eight hours a day and study in prayer, in addition to his pastoral labors. Joseph Aline in the 17th century and Charles Simeon in the 18th century, again, 4 o'clock till 8 in the morning. Martin Luther testified, I have so much to do today that I should spend the first three hours in prayer. And he had a motto. And it was that he has prayed well. He that has prayed well has studied well. Listen to the praying plan of the great Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane. He writes this, I ought to spend the best hours in communion with God. It's my noblest and most fruitful employment, and it's not to be thrust in the corner. The morning hours from 6 to 8 are the most uninterrupted and should be thus employed. After tea is my best hour that should be solemnly dedicated to God. I ought not to give up the good old habit of praying before I go to bed, but must guard against sleep. When I awake at night, I ought to rise and pray. See, he didn't have a a formula in this. He can offer up various prayers at various times. Rising early in prayer, again, has been the practice of this pretty elite group of men in the history of the church and men who have most fully illustrated Christ in their life, in their character, and in their ministries have been most powerfully affected by this, spending time in prayer. Those that have touched the world are those that have spent time touching God. If you had the opportunity to spend time in the Scriptures this week preparing for the sermon uh, with the notes from last week, you're very aware already of the habits of early prayer of Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Job, Hezekiah, David, and Jesus. Now, if you didn't think the first group was elite company, I'd say that's pretty elite company. Martin Lloyd-Jones asks us the probing question, what part does prayer play in your life? And how essential is it to you? Do we realize that without it we faint? Our ultimate position as Christians is tested by the character of our prayer life and it's more important than knowledge and understanding. The ultimate test of my understanding of the scriptural teaching is the amount of time I spend in prayer. He writes, as theology is ultimately the knowledge of God, the more theology I know, the more it should drive me to seek to know God. Not to know about Him, but to know Him. If all my knowledge does not lead me to prayer, there is something wrong somewhere. And without question, David was a man of prayer. He placed prayer in the highest priority. In the morning, I will direct it to you, and I will look up. The Hebrew word there in verse 3 for direct, where he says, I will direct it to you, the Hebrew word is arach, and it means to set in a row. It's a word used in the, of the temple sacrifice, of the laying of the wood upon the altar. And it was also used of the placing of the showbread upon the altar, in a sense, arranging. He's saying, in the Lord, Lord, I arrange my prayers before you. David is saying here, you'll hear my voice in the morning, Lord, and it will be ordered words. And here again we see the diversity of David's prayer. 
Here's a man we've already seen could cry out. In the moment of, of need, cry out a prayer. Here's a man we've seen who can offer the silent musings of a heartful prayer. But he also offers systematic prayers as well. And likewise, brothers and sisters, we should not limit our prayers to one type. Let us not only pray when we find ourselves in desperate need, when all we can do is cry and sigh, but let us pray when everything is aright in our lives. Not with a hot and hasty prayer, but with well-thought-out words, with a steady burn of a well-kindled fire. The Scripture is a wonderful uh, example of that. As you open up to many of the New Testament epistles, you find them to be prayers. You can open them up and read them and have a systematic prayer right before you. Then, after this full compass of prayer postures that David speaks of here, he says, I will look up. I will look up. That's a final component of a godly, acceptable prayer. I will look up. What is that speaking of? It's speaking of faith. We must not forget to watch for the result of our supplication. How can we expect God to answer us if we don't look for the answer? If you say, Lord, grant me direction. I don't know whether to go to the left or to the right. I don't know what to do. I'm seeking your wisdom about this. And then he closes up a door. Can't get to step one, but you're praying about step five. He closes up step one let alone two, three, four, or five. And you're trying to beat down door number one, praying about door number five. Well, maybe God is closing door number one because He's answered your prayer about door number five. See, that's pro- what I'm talking about in one word is providence. Look for providence as the answer to your prayers. I know of no better way to know God's will on a matter than that. What is He providing for you? If if it is His will, He will provide. He'll provide all the components. You're praying about about buying a car. Well, do you have the money to buy a car? Is it going to put you in in debt to buy the car? Well, that could be the closing of door number one, and you're worried about door number five. Look for providence today. He hasn't opened up a door today. Why are you so consumed with the future? On the other hand, if you go through the door that he's opened up today, you'll arrive at that future destiny more easily. So don't forget this aspect of your prayer, expectation and faith. Looking for the answer. Believe that once you have offered a prayer to God, look for the answer. Look, if you're not going to believe, then why even pray? What's the point of praying if you're not going to believe? If you don't believe in praying... When you do pray, it seems like you're depending on God, but you're not expecting Him. And by not expecting Him, you're renouncing the confidence that you say you have. In the morning, I will direct my prayer to you, and I will look up. Now, moving on to verses 4 through 7, we come to the comparison of the godly with the ungodly. First, the wicked in verses 4 through 6. For you're not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, Nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful men. And David here is establishing the conditions of the ungodly. He's going to contrast his own covenant relationship with God against this in a moment. 
He's going to distinguish himself from the wicked. But notice how he considers the wicked. He considers the wicked as God sees and understands it. He looks at sin as God sees and understands it. He makes no excuses for sin. Mankind, by nature, takes sin lightly. And if you don't believe that, think of the popular bumper sticker, or once popular, how much sin can I get away with and still go to heaven? This is what the world wants to know. How much sin can I get away with and still go to heaven? In contrast, the godly makes no provision for the flesh. He doesn't think, let me just you know, do this one more thing to, to please my flesh, and you know what? I'll repent afterward. And that is a very dangerous place to be. Because very often the consequence of sin is more sin. That's the nature of sin. Sin is never satisfied. Those of you who have dealt with addictions in your life know that. You constantly think, this is the last time. I'm going to stop. This is the last time. And you find yourself in an uncontrollable spiral downward. Look at how David understands sin as he reviews the type of evildoers. And look at the increasing intensity of the wording, both of the type of sin as well as the response of God to the sinner. He begins in verse 4, stated negatively, and you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Stated negatively. Not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. Okay. Then he says, nor shall evil dwell with you. All right. Well, look how the force now increases in verse 5. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. So from dwelling, now we go to standing, you see. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. Then what? You hate all workers of iniquity. See how it's getting harder here? That's how sin works. You hate all workers of iniquity. Now that's a hard word. God hates. But can it be any clearer? I ask the question, can the Scripture be any clearer? You hate all workers of iniquity. If you don't believe that, then you've got to either explain it away some way or say that David didn't really mean that or that David was in sin when he was penning the inspired Word of God. But we say, the church today has the idiom, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. But it says God hates the workers of iniquity. That is people. Do you understand that? that is, he's talking about people there. Why is it so hard for some to understand this language? Because of sentimentalism. Because of the love God theology. It's dulled our hearts. We've been dulled by it. Uncommissioned preachers present a God contrary to Scripture. You know, from Genesis to Revelation, the hatred and wrath of God against unrepented sinners is given equal prominence with His love. You, you can't deny this. Someone was sharing with me recently how when they read through the Bible straight through, that this was the thing that stood out more than anything. The wrath, the, the hatred of God for sin. And this disparity that exists in the modern pulpit and what the Bible clearly teaches about wrath and judgment is incorrigible. You hate all workers of iniquity. What is not clear about that? And if that's not enough, he goes on. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Can't get much more forcible word than that. Abhor. A powerful, active hatred 
for deceivers and for murderers. You know, the Bible never suggests that anyone could get away with sin. But rather that sin begets more sin and hardening begets more hardening. And the words of Psalm 69, another imprecatory psalm, iniquity is added to iniquity until, as Romans 2 states, in accordance with your hardness of your impenitent heart, you're storing up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath. We are not to presume upon the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, there's one thing that you take home. Do not presume upon the grace of God, thinking that you can get away with what you're getting away with, and I'll just repent later on. We have no right to assume that we can get away with sin because of God's grace. There's no guarantee that later will come. James Boyce perceptively observes on this passage that this is a good way to measure our praying. How well are we praying? That is, whether our, our prayers are drawing close to God's heart. How do we know? As you draw near to God, Boyce notes, you'll become increasingly sensitive to sin. Why? Because as you're drawing near to God, God is holy. And as you approach the holy, the perfect, the more aware you are of sins. Sins which you may never, have never counted as such from a distance. But you draw closer to God, these are revealed to you. That's why people fear the presence of God. That's why much of the church even hates the presence of God and hates His holiness. That's why there's so much froth and fluff built up. That's why preachers talk about politics more than they do the Word of God in pulpits. Because it is, in the words of the, the, the writer of Hebrews, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And God's holiness has two sides. There's a relentless goodness, a, a stick-to-itiveness that doesn't give up on the one side of His holiness for His children, but that goodness requires that there be justice for the evildoer. See, judgment and mercy, we think of them as competing characteristics. We think of it as old versus new. But they're two sides of the same coin, just like hatred and love are. We understand them as compatible for the same being to say, I am love, and to say, I hate workers of iniquity, only when we understand the holiness of God. God's holiness, His, His completeness, His perfections. That's really the world's problem. That is really the church's greatest problem, but it is also our greatest hope. Those who are perishing are gnashing their teeth at the idea of holiness. But on the flip side, God's holiness is the foundation of His work in salvation for those who love Him. Because of His holiness, He provided the perfect, spotless Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world so that those who believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. It's based upon His holy, complete, sufficient, and final work of God that David comes. That's, he knows that's His only reason that He's able to approach God's throne. Look at verse 7. David contrasts the ungodly to himself. But he doesn't do so by simply casting himself in the opposite light. You see, he already described the ungodly. We saw them wicked, workers of iniquity, lying murderers. Well, if David was going to... What's a contrast to that? Wicked, workers of iniquity, lying murderers. Well, saintly, workers of good, truthful, trustful, lovers of God. That's the opposite. But David doesn't cast himself in that light. Look at verse 7. But as for me, but, there's Mark, okay, but, now I'm going to tell you about me. 
I will come to your house. I can approach your throne. I can come to you. Lord, what? In the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. David casts himself on the mercy. Chesedachah. The chesed. The grace of God. Take note of the repetition also of the pronouns. Your house. Your mercy. I fear you. Your holy temple. This reveals the attitude of the humble worshiper. It's about you, Lord. And verse 8 continues along these lines. Lead me, O Lord. Here's his first prayer. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Once again, David does not consider his access to God as based upon anything in himself. Once again, salvation is of the Lord. I find that often when people appear to come to Christ, they often come under pretense. They come believing that it was their faith, their repentance, that merited the position in Christ. But only God can open up one's eyes that the reality is that true faith, true righteousness, true repentance are gifts of God. But as for me, I will come in the multitude of your mercies. The only way we come before the Lord's throne is because of His mercy. And that's David, David's attitude. He has bent his knee. He is relying completely upon that which is outside himself. What theologians call an alien righteousness. A righteousness that is not from within, but comes from God. I would ask you today, what are you trusting in? If someone were to ask you that age-old, hypothetical question, if you were to die today and stand before the judgment throne of Almighty God and He were to ask you the question, what have you done that you should be permitted in this holy place, what would your answer be? Would it be, oh, when I was 13 years old, I prayed a prayer? Or when I was 26, I walked an aisle? Or when I was 17, I was baptized? Or even I believed or I repented? If your answer is anything but nothing, Lord, there is nothing I have done that could merit such an inheritance. Unless your answer is, it is not what I have done, but what Christ has done and what He has accomplished, don't think that there will be any place of eternal rest. If you've not come to trust completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ, which excludes all of your works, all of your efforts, all of your merit then you're living in a system that will have in the end its wages death. And I would plead with you to consider Christ on His terms. On His terms. That you would come to Him as He is, the Sovereign Lord. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by Me. And there are many twisted and unsure ways that the enemies of God have established. And that's why David says what he says about coming in thy way because of my enemies. The enemies have made many twisted and unsure ways. Good works, religion, morality, all man's attempts and man's ways, but they fall short because a finite can never reach the infinite. But David prays, Lord, verse 8, Lord, make thy way straight before my face. He doesn't say my way. Lord, make my way straight. That's often our prayer, isn't it? But Lord, make Thy way straight. Jesus is the only way. Give up walking on Your own way that You might walk 
in God's way. Now verse 9 marks the beginning of the second half of the psalm. And having established a basis whereby the godly may approach God based upon His grace, and having established the authority and ability that God has to hear and to answer prayer of His children because He is King, and having demonstrated the hatred of God for the sinner and His unwillingness to hear their prayer, now David begins to offer petitions. And look in verse 9, he makes his request on the enemies of God. Verse 9, For there is no faithlessness in their faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. The idea conveyed in Hebrew here is that they have a smooth tongue. They're skillfully adept at shaving off the rough edges of the, of the falsehood so that it's not as palatable. Just mixing in enough truth with the lies so that it sounds pretty good. There are more than even just the outright wicked These are charlatans here that he's speaking about. Flatterers. People who tell you what you want to hear. There's no faithfulness in them. Their throat is an open tomb. The idea of the throat being their words. Their words are leading to death. Their throat is an open tomb. On such a one, David calls down a curse. And this is called an imprecation or an imprecatory prayer. And you're going to never understand imprecatory prayers of the Psalms or anywhere else for that matter if you don't have an appreciation for the justice of God. That's why I spoke about the justice of God. Also, you need to be aware that this is true of every single one of us. We are in some way, shape, or form, to some extent, whether it be to a little or to a lot, conformed by the idols of the modern church, the love God of the modern church. And as such... You're never going to accept imprecation when you hear it. You're going to hear it, and it's going to seem strange to you. If you've been affected by the words of the smooth flatterers of today's pulpits, imprecations are going to come as harsh. They're going to be the products of human flesh. And look, imprecatory prayers, or the preaching of judgment for that matter, is not meant to make us feel good. In fact, if we're honest, we feel uncomfortable when we hear that preaching. But they are absolutely necessary if we are going to be a biblical church. God in His providence has included in the canon of Scripture the perpetual prayer and songbook, this book that we're in, Psalms, this perpetual prayer and songbook of the church, hard words. And I'm not talking about hard words, hard to understand words. I'm talking about hard words. Plain enough but wrenched out of context by the rebellious heart of men who cannot bear them. And look, this is also intensely practical because this is a problem that we have had here, right here. Let's bring this down to bread of life. Some have come to this church. They've heard an imprecation, an imprecatory prayer. That is, again, a prayer calling down a curse on the ungodly, on the smooth speech devils that infest modern pulpits. They've heard that. And they've stumbled. And I don't want to even use the word stumbled because it's not really that, but more like they made a judgment. They made a judgment that an imprecatory prayer or the call down of a curse upon another is necessarily not a right prayer for a New Testament church. And they make such an assessment not because their minds have been conformed to Scripture, but because they have been conformed to the modern idols. 
But what I hope to do is take some time now to show you from the Scripture that while imprecatory prayers must be used with caution and occasionally, they are indeed very appropriate biblical prayers. In fact, I would go as far as to say that any truly biblical public prayer ministry must include appropriate imprecation. And if you've been in a church for five years and you've never heard an imprecatory prayer once, you can assume there's an imbalance in the prayer ministry of that church. I want to first show you that imprecatory prayers are biblical. Secondly, show you the objections that some have for such prayers. And then thirdly, the proper manner in which imprecatory prayers are to be offered and what our response to hearing imprecatory prayers should be. As I said, I'm taking more time now and then then when we come up to future imprecations in the Psalms, I'll refer back to this. Look at verse 10. Here is the imprecation. The very first one that we see in Psalms. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions for they have rebelled against you. Notice first, who are the sins against? They have rebelled against you. The sins are against God. There is no personal offense that David is raging against here. If one of my enemies sins against me, I owe him nothing but to forgive and love him, despite his sin against me. The imprecations of David give no excuse for the angry man who is hurt by a personal offense. You have no biblical right, and it is outright sin to curse, to gossip, to slander, to speak any malediction against anyone who has personally offended you. To such a one, again, you owe him nothing but to love. And the Scripture is clear. On the other hand, however, I have no power to forgive a man's sin against God. And David speaks here as God's mouthpiece in condemning the wicked. The objects of imprecation here are the enemies of God. They're the enemies of the nation of Israel who have set themselves against God and His purpose. And God, being a good God, will defend His own children. He doesn't leave us to be victims of the smooth-tongued men. He delivers us from such, and often the deliverance requires the judgment of our enemies. Just like Israel when they came out of Egypt. It required the judgment of Israel's enemies. Imprecations are not calls to take up the sword and to fight and to go out and get our enemies, but are calls upon God who takes vengeance in His time. As imprecations go in Scripture, Psalm 5 is a mild one. Turn to Psalm 109. I want to show you first, again, sample imprecations, just so you know. This is not an isolated prayer in Scripture. In fact, there are 20 such imprecatory prayers in the Psalms alone. I want to show you one. Psalm 109, verse 6. Set a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. And when he is judged, let him be found guilty. And let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Now, if you have trouble understanding what the psalmist is praying here, he's saying, wipe him out. He's saying, kill him. That's what he's saying. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. 
Let his posterity be cut off, and in generations following, let their name be blotted out. As I said, there were 20 such prayers in the Psalms. Turn to Acts chapter 8. For those of you who say, yeah, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Well, in Acts chapter 8, a man by the name of Simon, a sorcerer, saw the power of the Holy Spirit operating among the disciples, being manifested, and he said, I want that. And he offered the disciples money to gain that power. And Peter responds in Acts chapter 8, verse 20. Peter said to him, Your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are poisoned by the bitterness and bound by iniquity. Peter was not personally offended by Simon. This was not some ranting on his part. The idea, rather, that there, the holy could be purchased with a mundane thing such as money was so upsetting to his spirit that he called down this death curse upon the sorcerer. Paul, turn to Galatians chapter 1. We've, the Apostle Paul. It says, I marvel in verse 6 that you're turning away so soon from Him who called you by the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel of heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before and so say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The word accursed is anathema. Let him be damned. These are not warm, fuzzy verses. 2 Timothy 4, verse 14. Look at Paul's words to Timothy about another enemy of the gospel. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Ah, there you go. There's a personal offense. Shouldn't Paul have forgiven Alexander? Doesn't this prove that he's in sin? Well, look at what follows. It's not a personal offense. What's the much harm? The much harm was not Paul's person, but his words. Look what he says. You also must beware of him. Why? For he has greatly resisted our words. That's why Paul looked forward to the doom of Alexander the coppersmith, because he was doing the cause of Christ. He was doing the gospel much, much harm. He was a false prophet. It's not because Paul was sensitive or personally offended, but because damage was being done to the cause of the gospel. And if you need further proof of that, look at verse 16. Look what he says about a personal offense against him. He says this, at my first defense... No one stood with me, but all forsook me. That is a personal offense against Paul's person. They all forsook me. None stood with me. But what does he say? May it not be charged against them. See? Lastly, while we're in the New Testament, turn to Revelation 6. Because some will still argue all this imprecation is the product of unredeemed flesh. Old Testament, New Testament. It's all sin. It's all the product of unredeemed flesh. It has no part in the Christian's life. Look at Revelation chapter 6, where we have redeemed souls, martyrs, who came out of great tribulation. They're before the face of God, under the throne of God, no carnality, no flesh, 
fully enlightened saints redeemed before the face of God in light of His perfect holiness. He says, when He opened the fifth seal and saw the altar, the souls of those that had been slain for the Word of God and for the testimony which He held, verse 10, and they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true until You judge and avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth. How can they do this? How can holy, redeemed saints call about, call to God to be the avenger? Because they saw God is holy and that holiness requires justice. They were the first-hand witnesses of that holiness. People today do not believe that this kind of prayer is right because they're not aware of the holiness of God. They're living in the shadows. But here are people in full light and they're rejoicing. You know, I think of the Israelites when they, at that moment when they were closest to God given the great victory of coming out of Egypt and how God brought the Red Sea to swallow up the Egyptians and they didn't, weren't there weeping and saying, oh, those poor Egyptians. They said, I will sing unto the Lord for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider is thrown into the sea. The horse and the rider He's thrown into the sea. The nation of Israel as the covenant people sung about God's justice throughout the Old Testament. In Psalm 58, verse 10, it even says, the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Listen, it's not that imprecatory language makes you feel good. When it says, you shall rejoice, you see, we think of, we rejoice when we feel good. We, we, we link rejoicing with feel good. But the Scripture says love rejoices, what? In the truth. In the end of all time, you're going to be commanded to rejoice when vengeance is taken on your behalf. In Revelation 18.20, God commands rejoice over her, meaning destroyed Babylon. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. But people today set themselves up as judge and say imprecation on the one hand and forgiveness on the other are incongruous to our reason. So human agency once steps in, puts on the robes of justice again, and explains it away. And they have many ways of explaining it away. They explain away the imprecation as that's a product of human venting. That's anger. Others claim it as that's a product of the law. That's the Jewish dispensation. But consider this. These are prayers which God specifically in the New Testament tells us to use as our model for prayer in the, in, in the church. This is how the manner in which the church should pray. God inspired these words to be in our hymnal in a sense. These are God's inspired words, not the words of men. To reduce Holy Scripture to the product of sinful passions of men is an indefensible sin, yet many do this. Some say the curses, another argument, they only could be understood as future. That we're praying for future judgment to come down upon. That these are prophecies rather than prayers. But look at the language, even in Psalm 5, it's clear. These are petitions. These are prayers. And some of these prayers... Some of the most terrible of David's imprecations will fulfill, not in the future, but already in the hardening of the nation of Israel after Christ. And that's the irony of the whole thing, because then when you look in the New Testament at Paul's report about the hardening of Israel in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, what do the people do? 
they take them and they say, they criticize both. They say these are both examples of immoral teaching. Still others recognize the biblicity of imprecatory prayers, that these are biblical prayers. But, they say, we can't really pray like that today for the sake of peace. Now listen, this is the slightest of all the beasts in the field. This is the most subtle of all the beasts. It says, yes, imprecation has a place in the Bible, but we don't want the weaker believers to stumble. So we stay away from the harsher matters of Scriptures. And I would say, shame on you. Who are you, O man, to judge? To put yourself in a judge over what the Scripture says. I wonder if your real concern is the weaker sheep or holding on to the goats. And I say, shame on you, pastor, who have raised up a flock of infants and you care not one iota of their growth except in the image of your idol, I would say, may you be accursed. May God curse the smooth-tongued devils that lead the charge to worship idols. Imprecations are biblical. Anyone who would ignore that fact, whether in word or in practice, might as well get a scissor and cut out what offends you in the Bible. It's the same thing, but don't lie to people. Don't call yourself evangelical, fundamental, conservative, whatever you are. You're a liar if you do. You have more in common with the liberals than you have with Christ and His church. While it is clear that imprecatory prayers are biblical and do have a place in church's worship, at the same time, I do not deny that they can be misused or they can be abused, just like any good thing. It's certainly possible for a man to take a good thing and in his flesh make it into sin. And while I'm sure this has happened, this is not the case with David at all. There are few people in the Bible who are more forgiving of personal attacks than David. Remember how he wouldn't touch God's anointed Saul, though he was persecuted unto death? Remember Shimei, the one who came up one day and cursed David out of the blue? What was his response to that? How do I know? Let him curse me. How do I know that this curse is not coming from God? David demonstrated himself by his actions to be humble. If we're not humble, we run the risk then of inappropriate imprecation. And I ask, can a godly man in the midst of human passions call down curses upon his enemies inappropriately? Of course, the answer is yes, and in fact it happened. The greatest apostles, James and John, the sons of thunder, in their zeal, when the village in Samaria refused to receive Christ, what do they say? Lord, do you not want us to command fire to come down from heaven to consume them, just as Elijah did? But he they were rebuked by Christ, and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are. See? He's getting at the heart of what, what it was coming from. They were personally offended. You don't know what matter of spirit you are. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. To make an imprecatory psalm the vehicle of calling curses on personal enemies is a frightful abuse of God's Word. And this went on back in the days of the Reformation. John Calvin reports in his commentary of a time when people would actually, the rich, the noble would hire Franciscan monks to read Psalm 109 and call down curses on their enemies. 
And I don't know what's worse, to ignore the imprecation, to deny the imprecation, or to abuse them, that is to use the Holy Word of God as an excuse to avenge oneself. Matthew Henry writes on this, greater impiety can scarcely be imagined than to vent a devilish passion in the language of sacred writ, to kindle strife with coal snatched from God's altar, and to call for fire from heaven with a tongue tongue set on fire from hell. So we need to approach the matter of imprecation very carefully. But what's the rule? The rule we live by is when we are personally offended, we bless our enemies. We pray for them that despitefully use us. We pray for the salvation of all men, enemies or otherwise. It's the undisputed law of Christ that we love our enemies. We do good to those who hate us. We pray for our persecutors. However, when we must, and only with caution and a very reverent hand, better even to distrust yourself and your passions than to sin and claim a holy action for an unholy passion, but when the Spirit of God requires it, when we are praying in His will, He will ask you at times, at times, to stop praying for someone. He will ask you at times to turn others over to Satan. He will ask you at times, yes, even to call curses upon His enemies. I know some have a hard time receiving that. And I'm not saying imprecatory prayers are the usual habit of our prayers, but at fit seasons, they ought to find a place in public worship. Our prayers, if they are biblical, must include some sense of this because they are in the Scripture. When we look out at the world and we see all the things going on and watch of what is called the church as well, and we see it affecting ruinous attitudes on the people of God, it makes us angry with a righteous indignation. There is in, in the Christian a deep sense of hatred of evil and those who commit it. And if there's something in the Word of God which God says, I hate, then you must hate it too. You can't love and approve and even entertain that which God abhors. And deep down, every single Christian understands that the breaking of God's law requires an appropriate punishment. And we do pray for the individuals that they would turn to Christ. And we do pray that they would find forgiveness for their sins. But if they do not, then we realize that the righteous wrath of God abides upon them and they're deserving of the curse that they receive, even if that be an everlasting curse. Because God is righteous. When we pray, Thy kingdom come, what does that mean? There is in that prayer an expression of the desire that the earth would no longer be defiled with the presence of wicked men. That the wicked would be utterly consumed that man will once again would live in a paradise regained in perfect, in beautiful holiness. Andrew Bonar wrote this, when one of Christ's members is entire sympathy with his head, meaning Christ, when we're closest with Christ, he views the barren fig tree from God's point of observation. You know, I had one person tell me once, I can't follow Christ. He's, he's sinful and he's demonstrated his sin by cursing the fig tree. But Bonar says he sees the glory of God concerned in inflicting the blow and he too can cry, let the axe smite. Not in any spirit of revenge, not for want of tender love of souls, 
but an intense earnestness of concern for the glory of God. And this is what intoxicated David. David was intoxicated with the character, the glory, the name of God. He had a passion for the glory of God. He was concerned with the holiness of God. And if you are as well, brothers and sisters, your verdict will not be to defend fruitless trees or judge God, or judge His Word as being too harsh, or judge those who appropriately pray in precatory prayers. But your response is to applaud, yes, even rejoice, that the righteousness of God is being manifested in the ministration of justice. That's our response. And lastly, the psalm concludes. Psalm 5, verse 11. Final request on behalf of the godly, set apart from the set against the imprecation of the ungodly, verses 11 and 12. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For surely, O Lord, you will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. And that's really the heart of imprecatory prayer. Imprecation is not, we're just waiting blood for blood, eye for an eye. Give them what they deserve, Lord. But this is the heart of it. In the end, it's God's fatherhood. That God's fatherhood is manifested in a final vindication. A final and a full vindication of His children. He's our dad and He is going to defend us come hell or high water. To this day, one of the earliest memories of my dad was when the kid threw a snowball that hit me in the head. And I remember my dad running after him like I never thought he could run. And my attitude was, yeah, that kid got what he had coming. That was not my attitude. I remember, my dad is standing up for me. Well, your heavenly Father is standing up for you if you're his child. He has, in the sending of His Son, in the cross, in the Gospel, in the good news, He's done everything, everything necessary to save you. And He will when Christ comes again. And that's our shout for joy. We shout joyfully. Why? The psalmist says, because He's our defense. Because you defend them, He says. He saves us. He's going to clothe us with garments of salvation. He's going to surround us with a shield. The affirmation of the psalmist is, For surely, O Lord, you will bless the righteous. Can you say that? For surely, O Lord. Leaves nothing to question. Why? Because He is God. And He is King. And He will protect His children. And that's what we have to rejoice in. Joy is your unique privilege. I pray that our meditation today in Psalm 5, this morning prayer, would encourage you to pray rightly to your God and your King, that you understand the aspects of prayer and that you would rejoice in a God who is your defense, who is not only willing, but able to accomplish that which concerns you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.